I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 17. This is a chapter that's going to be the focus of our studies in God's Word over the next number of Lord's Days. I'm thinking at least three more messages, perhaps. We'll be up to Thanksgiving still in John 17. But um, we do want to get our bearings this morning. I want to give an introductory message on this prayer we find in chapter 17. I want to introduce this chapter to you. I want to place it in context of the flow of thought we have in the Gospel of John, as well as say something about its content and uh, something about its usefulness to us as the people of God. And to do this, I'm going to try to do three things. I'm going to try to say something about the chapter's significance, its scope, and its structure. Those three concerns. Something about the chapter's significance, its scope, and its Structure. First, then, the significance of chapter 17. That is, its importance, its place in the gospel, its place in the faith and life of God's people. What are we dealing with when we read and consider the prayer of Jesus in John 17? I think we can get a sense of what the options are that are before us when we look at the various titles that are given in the various Bible translations and also in the commentaries. Some of you have Bibles that have little headings about sections of Scripture. I took the time to run through a number of translations and the things that stood at the top of John 17. The old ASV of 1901 has as its heading that this is a section they would call the Farewell Prayer. I think that's ingenious. I think that's ingenious. You see what the editors of that Bible were trying to do when they placed um, that title on the prayer, the farewell prayer, is they were looking to show its close relationship to the farewell discourse. So that you have a scenario in their minds where Jesus is addressing his disciples for the final time in terms of an extensive discourse in which he prepares them for the things that are to come. He's preparing them for what he's been telling them all along. I am going. Where I'm going, you cannot follow. He's going to the cross. He's going to die for their sins. It's something they cannot do for him or with him. He must do it, and he must do it alone. And he will come back for a period of time after resurrection, and then he will leave them again to go to the Father's um, glory to ascend to the presence of the, of, the, of, of, the, of the God of heaven. And uh, in that place of exaltation, he would then send forth the Holy Spirit. And, and Jesus, in the midst of that discourse, is encouraging these disciples not to lose heart. Let not your heart be troubled. I've said these things, and sorrow has filled your heart. And he's looking to encourage them in the midst of their sorrows. He's looking to encourage, encourage them by the promises that he's given, that he's giving. It's for your good that I'm going. If I do not go, the Spirit will not come. And when he comes, this is what he's going to do. And this is something in your best interests. 
I will leave you orphans. I'll come to you. I'll come to you. And the Father will come to you. We will demonstrate our love to you. He tells them their responsibilities to keep his commandments if they love him. He's told them they need to abide in him. They need to abide in his love. They need to continue on, faithful and strong and endeavoring to cleave to him as the source of all of their strength. For apart from him, they can do nothing. And so Jesus gives this farewell discourse for their good, for their benefit, for their interests, to prepare them for the things that are to come. And he prays for no less a concern for them, for their good, for their interests. He prays that they would be kept. He prays that they would be unified. He prays that ultimately they would, they would, they would be glorified and also sanctified in there as well. Uh, that they would be kept and they would be unified. They would be sanctified. And ultimately they would be glorified. And so it's a farewell prayer in accordance with the 1901. A farewell discourse to be followed by a farewell prayer. In the Revised Standard Version, they go a step further in uniting these chapters by entitling the whole section. From 14 to 17, they call it the Farewell Discourses. The Farewell Discourses. They have the Farewell Discourse that Jesus spoke to his disciples. The Farewell Discourse part that he speaks to his Father on their behalf. It's all the Farewell Discourses in accordance with that, the editors of that version of that Bible. And I think that is an important insight. There is this close, clear connection between with the instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples and the prayers that he prays to the Father. Others, like the Good News translation, has Jesus prays for the disciples. That's a good title, isn't it? Jesus prays for his disciples. For doubtless, he prays for his disciples. The problem with that, the drawback with that, is that that's not the only thing he prays for. <laughs> In fact, some eight verses, he prays for not them, but him, himself. That the Father would glorify him with the glory he had with him from the foundation of the world. But perhaps the most frequently found heading in our Bibles, in commentaries, for John 17, is what you find in my own version, preferred version that I read from the pulpit, the ESV, the um, English Standard Version. It's also found in the New American Standard Bible. It's also found in the Amplified Bible. Also many well-known commentaries on the Gospel of John. And that's the title, The High Priestly Prayer. The High Priestly Prayer. I see Rich nodding his head. He's heard that before. We have heard that before. It probably is the most well-known title. It's the one I've known uh, for years uh, to refer to this passage. If you would say to me um, last week, Pastor, what is John 17? My response would be clearly the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. That's what I was taught to refer to it as, and I have referred to it through the years. In fact, even in the um, hymn that preceded, uh, much influenced by that notion, in the, in the hour trial, Jesus plead for me that Jesus not only prays a high priestly prayer when he was upon the earth, but he continues a high priestly ministry in the presence of his Father praying for his people. In the hour of trial, Jesus, plead for me. Lord Jesus, pray for me. Lord Jesus, I'm a needy sinner, and I look to you to pray for me. And it's in that sense that many times the high priestly work of Jesus is conceived as a, prayer, as a, as a ministry of intercession, which is a ministry of praying for his people. 
Well, it came as a surprise to me when I began my preparation for this week. Usually when I prepare for messages, I try to think of good questions to ask and answer. I think there was a time in my life I used to come to God's Word and I thought I had all the answers. And I just began to read the Scriptures with the sense, I know that, I know it's here. Of course I know it's here. I've read all the great books of exposition of Scripture, so I know what the Bible teaches. I've read the Confessions of Faith. I know what the Bible teaches. And I've come with my preset theology and I've tried to make every Bible verse conform. Well, in recent years, um, I've tried to come with questions I don't know the answers to and ask, Lord, what are the answers? How do I explore and discover what the true answers are? So I try to give myself a good list of questions. And so when I began preparation this week, I simply asked the question, why have I, why have others referred to this chapter as the high priestly prayer? I explored that question. And you know what I learned? I learned that the practice of calling it the high priestly prayer is not very ancient at all. It's not very ancient at all. In fact, if you would have gone up to St. Augustine back in the 5th century, if you would have gone to St. Chrysostom, both great preachers who preached from the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, and you would have said to them, what do you think about the high priestly prayer? You would have gotten looks like, what are you talking about? What's the high priestly prayer? Never heard of that. Never heard of that. In fact, the first one to call it the high priestly prayer, at least in print, was a Lutheran theologian by the name of David Critreus. And that was in the 16th century. And I guess he said it and it caught on. <laughs> but the question remains, was he right? Should we conceive of this prayer of Jesus in terms of it being a high priestly prayer? Now, let me tell you this. In one sense, all prayer is priestly. All prayer is bringing sacrifice to God. And come to Him with the sacrifice of our praises, the lifting up of our hearts to Him, the acknowledgement of our need of Him. You've got to lay aside every one of your own concerns, all of your self-sufficiency, all of your sense that you got life fully figured out, and you have to humble yourself before the living God. And you have to offer up your helplessness, and you have to offer up your neediness. You have to offer up a genuine sense of dependence and a willingness to be taught of God. Lord, show me what your word demands of me. Make me teachable. Give me help to receive from your hand. That's offering ourselves up to Him in the sense of need, in the sense of looking to receive. So that's all priestly activity that we as the people of God um, approach Him with the offering offering up of our helplessness, our neediness, ourselves, and, and our, our, our desire to know and to seek um, the, all the good that we need from Him. So all prayer in that sense is sacrifice. All prayer in that sense is priestly. In fact, uh, there's a picture in the book of Revelation of the uh, censers with the incense in the presence of God, and it says they are the prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints ascend into the presence of God like burning incense on the altar of incense. Up into heaven, up into the presence of God is the picture. But you know, when you think about the activities of priests in the Old Testament, it wasn't one of praying in particular. You don't read about the ministry of prayer that priests performed. Their ministry was the ministry of the altar. 
they served at the altar of burnt offering. They offered up sacrifices upon that altar. They offered up the incense upon the altar of burnt inc- of, of incense. Offering up prayer was not their notable work. You do have a priestly blessing that the priests offered in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 6. But I'm not aware of an instance of priestly prayer. If you can find one, let me know. But I'm just not aware of it. In fact, the notable prayers of the Old Testament are not especially priestly at all. In fact, they're seen to be and shown to be more the province of prophets and even kings, far more than priests. Maybe that surprises you. Well, look, if you will, at Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. You have this incident where Abraham um, appears in the place where Abimelech was king, Gerar. And as he did in chapter, uh, an earlier chapter, he seeks to pass uh, off Sarah as his wife. I'm sorry, as his sister, instead of his wife, uh, fearing uh, the people uh, that would uh, kill him in order to secure her. Um, and God brought these judgments upon Abimelech and, and his people. And uh, Abimelech uh, is approached by God, and uh, he said, Lord, uh, will you kill innocent people? In verse 4, did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? That's Abimelech's plea. And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Then, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. You might think, well, he's a prophet, so he can prophesy. The prophet will come and preach to Abimelech the judgments of God. Well, no. He is a prophet so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. He's a prophet. And what do you expect prophets to do? Well, prophets will pray. We don't often think of that. We think prophets, they come from God's presence, they bring God's word, they preach the message. But here we have prophetic work that's also a work of prayer. Prophets prayed. In fact, remember when God had to tell Jeremiah not to pray for the people. The very instinct of his heart as a prophet of God is to intercede, is to pray for the people. Think of all the great intercessory prayers you have in the Old Testament. Who was it that prayed those prayers? It wasn't the priests. It was the prophets. Think of when Israel sinned against God in the matter of the, of, of the golden calf. You would think, well, Aaron would pray for them. No, Aaron made the calf. The priest was involved with their sin. Who was it that prayed for them? Moses. Remember, Moses said, the Lord's going to raise up a prophet like unto me. Moses was a prophet. Prophets pray. Prophets seek the face of God. You think of all the chapter 9s of the Old Testament. There's three books in chapter 9. They all have notable prayers. It's the book of Ezra, it's the book of Nehemiah, and it's the book of Daniel. All three of those great intercessory prayers for the nation of Israel were prayed by non priestly figures Nehemiah it was the Levites I mean yeah the tribe of Levi from which the priests came but it wasn't the priests wasn't the priests in fact I don't think at that 
time there was even the temple for priests to function. But it was a group of Levites that prayed. You think of Daniel. Daniel was a prophet. You think of Ezra. Again, he was a scribe. He was one who spoke the word of God to the people. So this was not so much a question of priestly prayers that you find in the Old Testament, but prophets who prayed and interceded for the good and well-being of the people of God. And then also I think you have kingly prayers as well, of kings who were responsible to pray uh, for their people. You think of the dedicatory prayer of King Solomon in the book of uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. Lord, you, the heavens of heavens cannot contain you, much less this temple that I've built. And yet, when your people are in trouble and they turn towards this temple, hear from heaven and answer their prayers. Kings prayed. And I think it's more of Jesus as our heavenly king. Jesus as our prophet. We find him interceding. Not just in a priestly sense. There's nothing in the passage that indicates anything of priestly intercession. In fact, uh, you have in the um, second Psalm. This is something I thought of with regard to Psalm 2. Where you have Jesus in terms of his messianic identity. It's not Jesus, of course, but it's David's son. It's the one who would ascend to the throne of Israel. And God has one to ascend to the throne on Mount Zion. And it's in the midst of the raging of the nations. It's in the midst of the kings of the earth setting themselves, the rulers taking their counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. And they're in rebellion, and yet he sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord holds these rebels in derision. He speaks to them in his wrath, and he says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, you don't get the choice of who the king of the universe is. You don't get to choose who is the one who ascends to the throne and reigns. God has raised his son. God has set him at his right hand. God has said all he must reign till all of his enemies be placed under his feet. We live upon this world as if we reigned, as if we were Lord. And the great reality of the gospel is we are not lords. Jesus alone is Lord, and we are not. God says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. He says to the king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations for your heritage, the ends of the earth for your possession. Here's the son, the king, placed upon the throne, reigning on Mount Zion, reigning over the people of God, reigning over all of the earth, all the nations being made subject unto him. And God says to the son, ask of me. Pray to me. It's the very words in which Jesus says we're to pray. Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. It seems to me that's exactly what the Father says to Jesus. Ask and you will receive. Ask of me and you will receive. I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth for your possession. I believe we need to see Jesus as the great king to rule the earth, setting forth his disciples into the world to bring the message of the king, the king and his kingdom unto the peoples of this earth. 
that they would make disciples of the nations and bring all nations captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus. You see, we've come to associate the work of intercession uh, just simply with prayer, but actually Jesus' intercessory work. You know, Hebrews says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. How do we conceive of that? We conceive of that that Jesus is in the presence of the Father asking for our needs or interceding for us in terms of verbal prayers? And I say, no, I don't think so. I don't see that anywhere taught in the scriptures. That in the heavenly throne room, the Son is praying for the Father. I know that's the thought that most comes to mind. But I think the intercession that Jesus exercises is explained to us later on in Hebrews in chapter 10 when it tells us he appears in the presence of God for us. That intercession is his own presence in the heavenly throne room of God. And I rather think the kind of intercession that we're to conceive of when Jesus intercedes for us in in glory is what Wesley spoke of when he wrote the hymn, Arise, my soul, arise. And he says, Five bleeding wounds he bears, receive on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. It's his death. It's the accomplishment of his work. It's his presence in the throne room of God, which in the book of Revelation... We read of the line of the tribe of Judah speaking and then John turns and what does he see? He doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb as if it were slain in the very presence of God, in the throne room of God. Who appears for us? Well, John hears the voice of a lion but he sees a lamb as if it were slain. That's intercession, folks. That's why we're not destroyed when the reality of our sins stand before a holy God. We have a mighty Savior who intercedes for us. His blood having been shed for our forgiveness. His blood crying out that we would be forgiven. We would be received. We would be accepted. And that our prayers would be received and accepted. I don't think we see here an example of a priestly prayer in which we see now how Jesus intercedes for us in heaven. I think we see a prayer that Jesus prayed upon this earth in which now we are entitled to echo his prayers and pray to God for the exact things that Jesus prayed for. This is an exemplary prayer for us that the words that were in our Savior's mouth should be often upon our own lips. What does Jesus pray for? He prays for his glory. He prays for the glory of his Father. What do you pray for when you pray? Give me this, give me that, give me the next thing. I got some tremendous need, Lord. Lift the burden. Is that all? How do you pray? Is that the extent of your prayers? It ought not to be. The first thing Jesus taught us to pray for is, Hallowed be your name. Lord, that your name be magnified, that your name be glorified. He prays, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your Son with the glory he had with you from the foundation of the world. He prays that his people would be kept. What do you pray for? You pray that God would keep you in his ways? That God would keep you with an ardent love for his son, with an ardent interest in his glory and in the advancement of his kingdom in the world. Again, that's how Jesus told us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. He prays that the people of God would be sanctified, set apart unto God, wholly consecrated to 
living God. Do you pray for that? That your life would be a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to Him, which is your spiritual service, that you would render your bodies as living sacrifices, your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet, to serve Him, to live to the praise of His glory. He prays for the glorification of the people of God, and the unification of the people of God, ultimately in God's presence. Now, these are things that constitute the prayers that you pray. So I think it's an interesting thing that in chapter 16, when Jesus speaks about prayer to his people, he says when he enters into the Father's presence, he speaks of it in terms of in that hour. In that hour. He makes a distinction between this hour and the coming hour. There's a coming hour. And in that hour, he says, this is in the words of chapter 16, and in verse 26. He says, in that day, you will ask in my name. In that day. What day? The day of his glory. The day when he returns to the Father. The day when he ascends and is enthroned. The day of his exaltation. You will ask in my name. Why? Because the name of God is in Jesus. The full revelation of God is in Jesus. The fullness of the Godhead was in Him bodily. He was the temple on earth, who now is the temple in heaven. And so we approach God in His name. But He goes on to say, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So up to this point, that's what Jesus did. He was always asking the Father on behalf of His disciples. But now a new thing is coming. A new way of prayer for the people of God. Not just Jesus pray for us that the Father would give us. But that we pray as He prayed. In His name. The example of prayer is given for us in this high priestly prayer to encourage us to pray even as Jesus prayed. I believe that's the significance of this prayer. Again, if I'm wrong and Jesus prays for us in heaven, fine. He's praying for me too. And we're all benefited. No doubt. No doubt. But I think the main thing is not so much how is, what is he doing in heaven? Is what, are we, what are we doing on earth? What are we doing to emulate this prayer? To take this prayer to heart and to have echoing in our own hearts, in our own prayer life, the concerns that Jesus has. And the concerns that Jesus expresses in this. I'm going to call it messianic prayer. I don't know what else to call it. Messianic prayer. The prayer he prays for us. As our prophet who teaches us. As our king who reigns over us. As the priest who's paved a way into heaven for us. That we can approach God. And we can pour out our hearts in prayer. And be confident our prayers are heard. That our prayers need to reflect something of the heart of Jesus as is expressed in this prayer. So that's the way we're going to approach it as we study the 17th chapter. But now I have to say something about the scope of this prayer. Easy point. Easy point. I express it in one word. What's the scope of this prayer? Answer. It is huge. It's huge in its scope. It reaches to the very heights of heaven. 
That the Father would glorify the Son. That the Father would be glorified in the Son. That the Son would be glorified in His work upon the cross. In His resurrection. In His exaltation. In His mediatorial lordship. All for the glory of God the Father. You don't get anything greater. Anything more majestic. Anything more wondrous than this. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. It's a prayer that ascends into the very heights of the heavens with the desire that all that the Father had given him would be with him where he is. To see his glory. The glory that you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays from the most distant reaches of time, before the foundation of the world, to the end of time, to the most distant reaches of space. Prays in the, for his eternal glory, his presence with the Father, the people's presence with, with, with the Father. It doesn't get bigger than this, folks. It doesn't get vaster than this. It doesn't get more immense. It's the essence of life eternal. This is life eternal. That they may know me, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And if we're not impressed yet by the vastness of this prayer, just consider this. This is a prayer in which you and me are being prayed for. We are being prayed for in this prayer. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, that is the disciples he made in the days of his flesh, the disciples whom he had taught in the preceding chapters. He says, I'm not just praying for them, I am praying for them, but not only for them, but for all, also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, folks. That's us. We have believed in Jesus through the apostolic word. Jesus prayed for us that we would be sanctified, that we would be unified, that we would be kept, preserved for His eternal glory, that we would be glorified in His presence. Then having prayed in this way, what does He do? He secures those realities by going to the cross and dying. By rising from the dead. And then ascending into the Father's presence to bring these very prayers that He prayed to His fruition through the working of the Spirit in the lives of the people for whom this prayer is prayed. That scope, that's massive. It's absolutely breathtaking. And I hope we'll see something of the breathtaking nature of this prayer as we move along through it. So, we've looked at its significance. It's a prayer that's exemplary for the kind of prayers that we are to be praying because it's the way Jesus prayed for his people upon the earth and entitles us to come into the presence of God and echo his prayer concerns with the confidence 
that the Savior won't be denied and we won't be denied who come to God through faith in Him. And then the scope of it, it just simply is massive. Stretching from eternity to eternity, stretching from heaven to earth, throughout all of time, encompassing all of God's people in all ages and all generations. Finally, we have a structure that this passage has. and Basically, the three major divisions to this prayer. Jesus prays for himself, for his glory. That's the first part. Then he prays for his immediate disciples, the present disciples, praying that they would be guarded, they would receive good, and they would receive glory. He prays that they would be guarded, that they would receive good, and they would, be, they would receive glory. He prays that they would be kept and preserved, that they would be sanctified, that they would be unified, and they would be with Him, where He is. And then finally, in the last part of the prayer, Jesus prays for future believers. He prays for the church throughout the history of the church. That's what we're going to be doing in weeks to come. And ask you to pray that God's blessing would attend these messages. But as we conclude this morning, I do want to leave you with some some takeaways. I want you to note, and we all should note, and we all should be impressed by the fact that Jesus' prayer is marked by the priority of the glory of God. And in essence, folks, all prayer should be marked with the priority of the glory of God. When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Prayer does not begin with us. It begins with God. It begins with His interests. It begins with the glory and honor of His name, the hallowing of His name, that His name would be set apart in all the earth. His name is His revelation of Himself. It is who He is. It's how he is known. And we're praying that the God of heaven and earth, the maker of all things, the Lord of all things, the one who sent his son to redeem us to himself, that his name would be magnified. His name would be blessed. His name would be honored. His name would be revered. That God would be to us, beginning with me, beginning with me, the central factor of life and that he would be to others also the central factor of life when we pray for ourselves we need to pray for others we need to pray this prayer as as a missionary prayer Lord your glory that your glory would be known unto the utmost bounds of the earth Jesus is consumed with the glory of his father glorify your son not just that I might be dwelling in the place of glory but that the son may glorify you glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed where does the glory of God stand on your list of priorities where does the glory of God fit into the things you think are important what are the great things that are in your heart and mind right now who emerges victorious in the playoffs, whether the Yankees advance to the next round, 
where the Giants are going to continue to win football games or they've done something that's a fluke in the past weeks. Well, if you're sports-minded, that's, those are the things you're glorying. Those are the things that really give you joy and happiness in life. We tend to glory in numerous things of that nature. Remember Jeremiah's words, Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. But let him who glory, glory in this, that he knows me, the only true God. That should be the point of our glory, the greatest possession we have, that we have been admitted into the fellowship of the triune God, to know the God who is living and true, to be the possessors of eternal life, what is eternal life? It's not just endless duration of life. Who wants that? Endless duration of life and misery? Who wants that? This is eternal life, that they may know me, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life on those terms fills our hearts with wonder and amazement. That's something truly to be desired and sought. And God gives that in His grace. Glory in it. Glory in it. And pray that, in the glo- that all of life would redound to the glory and praise of God. That's how Jesus prays. And then also note how His prayers are marked by selfless love. Selfless love. Not only the priority of God's glory, but also selfless love. And again, remember where Jesus is at this point in the gospel. This is the night in which he is betrayed. He's going to leave the presence of his disciples. He's going to go out to Gethsemane. He's going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be arrested. His disciples are going to try to fight a fruitless battle. They'll lop off and high priest's ear, Jesus is going to say enough of this, and heals actually the ear of this enemy. And then gives himself up willingly. Gives himself up willingly. And if I knew that awaited me, I would be consumed with the terror of it. I'd be consumed with the, just the utter reality of it. What is before me? And this was present to Jesus' mind. He knew what awaited him. And yet in the very night that he was betrayed, what does he do? He prays for his disciples. He prays for these people. He teaches them. He provides for them. He washes their feet. He provides the Lord's Supper for every succeeding generation. And he prays in the way that he does for them. Our prayer is also to be marked by selfless love. Again, prayer is not a gimme session. God does not give us access to his presence that we should just be... What was the old Janis Joplin song? Lord, buy me a Mercedes Benz? I mean, no, no. I don't care if that is your favorite car or whatever it would be. That's not what prayer's for. Prayer's to enter into God's fellowship and to be agents in the process of not just bringing blessing down upon our heads, but blessing upon the church of Christ. That God's presence and blessing and favor would be upon a fallen world that the gospel would go forth triumphant. Again, it's God's concerns. His name hallowed. His kingdom would come. His will would be done on this earth as it's done in heaven. It's done in heaven perfectly. 
It's done on earth so imperfectly by ourselves, by others, by the church, and of course by the world. But our prayer is that God's blessings would prosper the work of his gospel, would prosper the work of his servants, would prosper the furtherance of the church in the world. And our prayers ought to be focused upon those concerns because selfless love should be the motivating factor that brings us into the presence of God. You have problems praying? Get caught up with God's glory. You have problems praying? Get caught up with the concerns of others, the needs of others. There was an old psychologist back in the 60s when he was asked the question, what would you do to help somebody who's in the midst of depression? He said he'd bring him to the poorest family in town. Say, get to work helping him. That's going to lift you out of your depression if you know someone else is worse off than you are and it's your responsibility to provide help and aid. The problem with depression is we're all caught up within ourselves. That's a problem with most of us. We're all caught up with ourselves and our own things. Get caught up with the needs of others, the burdens and concerns and cares of others and know that you're responsible to intercede. You're responsible to bring those those people before the throne of grace to pray like Jesus prayed, to pray for others. And then also see how Jesus' prayers are marked with a concern for the future. Again, our problems are we're we're lost in the immediate. We're we're lost in the the crisis of the urgent thing now, the pressing matter today. Jesus is thinking about centuries to come. How many of you have started to pray for my successor? I'm not going to be around forever, folks. Are we thinking of the future? Are we thinking of the future of this church? To pray in the light of that? To ask God to cause this work to continue on for His glory and for the good of others? That there would be faithful ministry in this church for years and years and years to come? Are we thinking about that for other churches, other assemblies? Are we just caught up with ourselves? Look, read the Psalms. How often it is that that word would be passed on from generation to generation to generation. There was that sense of the need of the people of the present hour to ensure the good, the well-being of the future. Jesus' prayer is concerned with the future. Let our prayers also be future-oriented, God-glory-oriented, and the needs of others oriented. And I believe having perspectives such as these will give a, a shot of energy, perhaps, to our prayer life before the living God. May God be pleased to bless his word. Let's commit our thoughts to him as we go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time in your word and I I would pray that what is faithful and true and good and in conformance to your will would be things we would latch on to, we would remember, we would utilize, we would live in the light of anything that's been merely speculative or that you'd blow on it and wouldn't come to remembrance, remembrance again. But help us, Lord, to benefit from our Lord's example of prayer. Help us to be a people of prayer. Help us to be energized in our prayer life by thoughts of your glory, thoughts of others and their needs, thoughts of the future and the burden and concerns that uh, we are concerned to leave to the next generation or the good we would leave to the next generation. We'd ask you to hear our prayers. We'd ask you to dismiss us with your blessing and prosper us in all that is before us throughout this Lord's Day 
And in the week that is to come, we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.